We're going to read from God's word, um, Psalm 22, Psalm 22. The title of this psalm tells us that it was to the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn. Perhaps that was the, the music to which it was sung, um, and it is a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and I'm, I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. 
Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Well, we're looking this morning at Psalm 22. Uh, please turn again uh, to that passage and uh, we will be working our way through this passage this morning. Whatever part of the Bible we turn to, we uh, often remind ourselves every part of Scripture is God's Word. It is God-breathed. It has a message for us. It is relevant. It is up-to-date. It is complete. Um, we believe that. And yet there are some parts of Scripture which perhaps we have to approach with particular care and reverence. Uh, all of God's Word, of course, is, is to be approached in the right way, but um, there are some passages that particularly focus upon the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and uh, we realise we're on holy ground. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, speaking about this psalm, uh, said that if, uh, if there is any scripture um, that needs to be approached carefully, then it is it is this one. Um, if there was ever any holy ground anywhere in Scripture, he said, it is here. And that we might almost feel that like Moses, we ought to take off our shoes because this is holy ground. There's a depth to this psalm. Um, and, and as you peel off one layer of truth, you see there's another layer underneath and another. Um, there are different levels of application on one level, it's speaking to us about David and the very real experiences that he went through which caused him to write this psalm. We know that throughout David's life, um, he went through many trials, many difficult times, and he often faced dangers and threats from his enemies. There was the time early in his Life when he was being pursued by King Saul and his armies and his life was in danger. And then later on, David's own son Absalom rose up in rebellion against the king and formed an army to fight against him. And again, his life was in great, great danger. Um, we don't know the precise circumstances. We're not told that, but we do know it would have been um, one of those occasions when he greatly feared for his life. So there's that level. Um, and then, of course, as Scripture speaks to us today, in our own experiences here and now, which all of the Bible does, there must be something that the Lord is saying to you and to me for today, for our lives. And so we might think, well, how would we cope if we were to face troubles and trials in life of various kinds? And God has something to say to us about that here in this psalm as well. 
But I think if we leave it there, we miss perhaps the most important application of all. And I'm sure you've picked up on that as we've read this psalm and thought about it already. That it's speaking to us in a profound and a wonderful and a very detailed way about the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Now that is amazing when you think about it because this psalm was written around about a thousand years before Jesus was even born. How can it speak with such accurate detail foretelling all of those events which would take place many, many years afterwards? Well, because I would suggest, strongly suggest um, and claim on the authority of God's word, it is because all scripture is God-breathed and because the Lord knew when these words were written what was going to happen to his son many years afterwards. And um, the whole of this psalm is really um, focused upon what was happening on the cross and what that meant. We know, don't we, that the Gospels record in the New Testament as Jesus hung upon the cross, he quoted the first words of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It may well be that he spoke more of this, more of the words of this psalm, or at least he would have had that in his mind. You can picture this psalm, if you like, as a seesaw. There are different sections of the psalm. Sometimes it's speaking about human feelings, very real human emotions. And the saviour, as a real man, knows what all of those emotions are like. That's why he can identify with us in all our struggles and, and, and troubles. Feelings. That's on one side of the seesaw. But then there's the voice of faith, which answers the voice of feelings. That's the other side of the seesaw. Three times in this psalm, it is feelings which cry out. Three times, the voice of faith answers. And it is faith that has the final word. So let's take it in that way. Um, first of all, verses one and two. It is feelings, very real human feelings that cry out. And if we summarize verses one and two, it's saying this, I am deserted. I am deserted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. I'm deserted. Most of us, at one time or another in our lives, will face experiences which will cause us to ask the question, why? Why, oh Lord? You're not on your own if you've asked that question. Or if you do ask that question in, in future events, you're, you're not on your own. Many, many of um, the most godly uh, Christians in the past have been through experiences like that. Many of our hymn writers, missionaries, uh, preachers, in church history, uh, and of course today, have gone through experiences that cause them to ask, why, 
Lord. But David doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just ask, why is this happening to me? And that's not always a wrong question. We, we, we struggle, we're confused. We don't see things in that big picture in the way that God does with his perfect knowledge. Why is not always a wrong question, but David doesn't just say, why is this happening? He goes further, doesn't he? Why, Lord, have you left me all alone in these circumstances? In the darkness of his troubles, he actually feels that God has abandoned him. I'm deserted, he says to himself. And again, though, um, though we're not to blame God for what's happening to us, though we're not to lose sight of the fact that he is in charge and that he knows and he understands and he has a good purpose for us through all our struggles, though we're not to blame God, why, Lord, even why, why am I struggling all on my own, it seems, even that prayer has been echoed by many, many true and godly believers. Even the Lord Jesus himself cried out, didn't he? Why have you forsaken me? And so if we've ever been in a situation like that, or if we ever do face situations like that, where we're, we're crying out to God in prayer, and it seems we're praying day and, and night and as far as we can tell, there's no answer coming back to us. If we've been there and we're saying, Lord, why? We're not alone. And we need to understand that the Saviour knows perfectly what that is like. Even far more than we will ever know because, uh, of course, what was happening to him was that he was carrying the weight of all the sins of all his people in his agonies on the cross. As he hung there upon the cross, even the light of the sun was blocked out. And for three hours, an awful darkness descended on the land. And uh, when he could no longer catch sight of his heavenly father, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we need to pause at that point and think, and ask ourselves, what was happening there? What was going on that would make Jesus cry out in such a way? And again, we have to tread carefully. We can only go so far in understanding these things. But scripture tells us that in his death, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was bearing sin for his people, that he became a substitute for the sinner. And it's along those lines that we need to understand the events of the cross. A few years ago, I set off on a journey with, my, with our eldest son, Sam, um, a journey that I will never, ever forget. It was an amazing experience. We uh, cycled from John O'Groats in the north of Scotland down to Land's End in the far uh, southwest of England. Um, might seem a crazy thing to do. Why would we do something like that? Well, Sam was preparing for six months, um, a six months short-term mission trip um, to Peru with the Christian uh, charity Tear Fund. 
He was going to be working with children up in the mountains. Um, and, and so it was a um, part of the preparation. The gifts that came in through uh, that opportunity were, were given for that project. And it was a, an amazing time, not, not just to spend two weeks with my son, which was a lovely thing to do. Um, but we went through so many uh, memorable experiences together in those couple of weeks, 16 days with, with two rest days as part of that, two, two Sundays. And um, we flew, first of all, from Bristol up to Inverness. And then we, the next day we caught a coach and that took us the rest of the way up to John O'Groats. At, at that point, we had the bikes in cardboard boxes. We'd taken them apart and put all the bits in these boxes so they, they could be transported. So now, when we got to the car park in John O'Groats, we had the task of trying to put these things back together and hoping that we'd remembered all the bits. Uh, thankfully, it did work. We, we got the bikes together and um, we set off on that journey. So many things um, I could tell you, but time won't allow that. But it, the journey went very, very well on the whole. Uh, my father had uh, done a similar cycle ride, similar route, 30 years previously, and he'd warned me about some of the events. He, he said, when you get to Glencoe, um, you know, that big mountain in Scotland, he said, just put the bike in the lowest gear. Don't try and race, just, just trundle, just trundle, trundle. You'll get there. Um, and... and there were many events like that where we just had to keep going and think, well, uh, what are we doing this for? But, but with God's help and grace, we got there. Um, there was one point in the trip, going through some villages in Cumbria. Normally, we cycled fairly close together. Sometimes one of us would go ahead for a while and, and then we'd wait for each other. We got separated and um, I, I was ahead at that point and I stopped and I... I knew that Sam wasn't far behind, and I was looking back over the brow of a hill, thinking he'll come over, the, over that hill any moment now. Well, 20 minutes went by, half an hour went by, I was starting to get worried. So I thought I'd better phone him. When my dad had done the cycle ride many years earlier, he had a, a mobile phone about the size of a brick and it hardly ever got a signal. But we, we had um, mobiles, we had Google Maps, we had all the latest technology, but technology doesn't always help us out. And when I got my phone out, I realized the battery was flat. And now I'd been fairly good up until that point, charging my phone each day, but I, I hadn't charged it enough. I thought, what do I do now? There was a lady gardening in the front of uh, her house, and I asked her, is there a phone box anywhere in the village? No, she said, but you can use my mobile. I said, oh, thank you very much. Uh, let, let me give you some money for the call. No, she said, I'm on a contract. It's fine. Well, then I had to try and remember Sam's phone number. I knew it was in my phone, but that was no good. I couldn't remember. So I thought, what do I do next? I'll phone my wife. So I phoned back to my wife in Wales and um, there was no answer. So I phoned my father-in-law who lives across the road, um, John, you know, <laughs> John, and uh, he answered, thankfully. So now he comes with his uh, cordless phone across the road. Uh, my wife had been doing the, the vacuuming, so she hadn't heard the phone. So now we've got some communication again. So... My wife, Liz, phoned Sam 
and she managed to get through, thankfully. So now there's a three-way conversation going. I'm speaking to Liz, she's speaking to Sam, and at one point in her frustration, she said, oh, just, just talk to each other, and she tried to put the phones together. Well, of course, I couldn't hear a thing. But we did, we did work out what had happened. Uh, Sam, by this point, <clears throat> had actually taken a slightly different route that ran parallel to the main road that I was on, and he'd gone ahead of me by about a mile and was waiting for me. Well, the sense of relief when I saw him again, I, I uh, can't really put into words. It was amazing. That communication had been broken, but, but then it was restored. We were together again, and I, I felt a great sense of relief and thankfulness for that. Communication between the Father in heaven and the Son broke down at the cross. That in Jesus' real human experience and sufferings, he lost sight of the Father. Now, the relationship wasn't broken. That eternal love between the Father and the Son could never be broken. But in his very real humanity, and because of the purpose of the cross, it was necessary that that communication for that moment in history should be broken and he cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me as the full weight of all our sins the sins of all his people for all time in all places was was gathered up and placed upon the son of God as he bore the full weight of that in our place it was necessary that he suffered hell for the sinner <laughs> And all of the wrath of God, a holy God, <clears throat> poured out upon his own dear perfect son, sinless son. And he absorbed all of that for our sakes in order to set us free. As I said, we can only begin to touch the surface of what that means. But scripture tells us enough to realise that's what was going on. The son of God died for me. To set me free. And then of course he, the, the, the communication was, was restored and um, he rose from the dead. Uh, he brings us into everlasting life as we look to him and we'll spend eternity with him if we believe in his name. So... That first part of the psalm, we spent far too long on that, but uh, we will move more quickly, is reminding us of what was going on there on the cross. I am deserted. Jesus was carrying the weight of all our sins for us. And so we may feel when we're at our lowest that God is no longer there, but he is there. He is, to use the words of Francis Schaeffer, uh, a Christian and a philosopher. He is the God who is there. And whatever we feel or, or see around us, that is the reality and it does not change. And so the answer of faith, the answer is God is there. So we're moving on now to verses three through to five. God is there, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. 
Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. David reminds us, as he reminds himself, that God is there. He's always been there. Um, He always will be there. And um, he, he looks back upon those key events in the history of Israel when, against all the odds, as it were, God brought them through um, and he saved them. He saved his people from uh, slavery in Egypt, brought them out by a mighty hand, saved them through the Red Sea, saved them through the wilderness, uh, saved them against many enemies in battle. Uh, he established a kingdom and he was with his people. Um, yes, the Lord is there. He's always there. He's there in our own personal experiences, in in your experience as a church congregation here. He has been with you and he will be with you at every point. God is there. He inhabits the praises of Israel and uh, he will never forsake us. But then from verses 6 to 8, the seesaw of experience tips back towards feelings And the cry now is, I am despised. He said, I am deserted, but now he says, I am despised. Everyone's against me. I am a worm, he says, and no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. I am despised. It's been said that there's no more lowly creature than a worm. It has no legs. No backbone, no eyes. It just wriggles around in the dirt and gets trampled on. You've got to have a pretty low opinion of yourself to describe yourself as a worm. But in some sense, David is right. Uh, He is nothing. We are nothing in ourselves. We can't please God in ourselves or our own strength. We're helpless. We're vulnerable. We need the Lord to save us. And yet we, we mustn't go so far as to think we're insignificant to God. He values us and he loves us. But David, in his experiences here, realises he was despised by his enemies. He'd become a reproach of men. But he, through the, the Holy Spirit's um, Speaking through David and foretelling events in the future, it points us to what would happen to Jesus. Isaiah the prophet predicted this, didn't he? As God spoke through him in in chapter 53 of Isaiah, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Gospels record that those same people in their great crowds who a few days earlier had lined the streets leading into Jerusalem with palm leaves and putting their coats on the road and welcoming the king riding on a donkey, uh, shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those same people probably, many of them, were now crying out as they were stirred up by the religious leaders, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They were crying for his blood. Verses 7 and 8 exactly describe how the Lord Jesus would be treated. He was ridiculed. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. And we know, don't we, from the gospel accounts that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, forced him to wear a scarlet robe like a king. They put not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns on his head. They gave him a reed to hold as a scepter. And then they mocked him. They bowed the knee, says Matthew in chapter 27. Bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. They made insulting gestures. They shot out the lip and shook their heads. That's what it says and that's what happened. To stick out the lower lip in Eastern culture was an extreme insult. Charles Spurgeon, to quote him again, has said, they made faces at him before whom angels veil their faces. Matthew 27 again records in verse 39, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. It's a direct fulfillment of these words in Psalm 22. Physical attacks were not enough for the enemies of the gospel and of the Son of God. Um, they poured scorn on his relationship with God, and that hurt more than the blows of their fists. Again, reading from Matthew 27. Um, Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. And here is a direct quotation from Psalm 22. It's amazing that the enemies of Christ actually use the words of scripture to insult him. A direct quotation. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him, they said. Let him deliver him now if he will have him, for I am, for he said, I am the son of God. Now, Jesus uh, spoke plainly to his followers, his disciples, and he said that if we follow him, we must be prepared to deny ourselves, to take up the cross and follow him daily. And that that will mean that the world will persecute us. We won't go through the same degree of suffering that the Saviour did. No one will. And we may not go through the same degree of suffering that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through right now in other parts of the world. But you can be sure that if you follow Jesus, the world won't like it and the world will be against you in some way or another. But Jesus tells us, blessed are you, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward 
in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5 verses 11 and 12. So yes, the voice of feelings said, I am despised. And sometimes that's true. As Christians, we face that. But what does the voice of faith answer now? God cares. Verses 9 to 11. God cares. David remembers how God has not only been there, present with him, but he has cared for him. Even from his infancy, God has watched over his life. He's been in control of all that's happened to him. Verse 9, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you, verse 10, from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Can we doubt God's care throughout our lives as we see the many, many blessings he has brought to us? Even in the difficult times, he, he has not stopped caring for us. And when we think about uh, the greatest gift of all, Jesus coming into the world and all that he has done for us, can we doubt that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he would send his son to go through all of that for us? Jesus himself knew the care of his father in heaven, even from a very early uh, time in his earthly life. Remember how um, when the news came to Herod, the king, that a, a king, a baby had been born. Um, what did he do? He sent his soldiers out to go through the region of Bethlehem and to slaughter um, in great sadness um, all those baby boys under the age of two in that region. But in God's providence, um, through a dream to Joseph, the family was rescued, they escaped to Egypt until the danger was past. It was not the time for the Son of God to die. That was planned and purposed by God from all eternity in the past. Uh, can we speak of eternity in the past? You know what I mean by that. From before the foundation of the world, it was planned, but the time was not yet. Uh, and, and so it was necessary that Jesus would grow up and that he would begin his work and, and preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick and, um, and, and, and uh, help the poor and do all of those good works um, in the name of his father and then that he would suffer and die on the cross. That was, that was all in God's plan. And the apostle Paul can say, can we say, as in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, God cares. Cares for each one of us, individually, deeply, personally. And he's proven that by sending his Son to die in our place. But then for the third time in this psalm, the seesaw of human experience tips back towards feelings. In verses 12 to 18, deep horrors crowd the, the Saviour's mind. He had thought himself to be deserted and despised, but now as the true horror of his sufferings faces him, 
he says, I am destroyed in one sense. I am destroyed. That was what David was crying out. And on a physical level, in in some sense, that's what was going to happen. Now, even to Jesus. His enemies surrounded him. They're compared to wild animals, like bulls, verse 12. Strong, fierce. Uh, Like lions, verse 13. Um, Doing great damage, tearing flesh. um, Raging furiously. In verse 16, they're described as dogs. Closing in, surrounding him, preparing for the kill. Christ was being hunted down by his enemies. Verse 14 suggests that he was being poured out like a drink offering to God. Just as water is poured out on the ground, as one commentator has said, he was pouring out his life through tears and sweat and blood. And then... um, It says all his bones were out of joint. The jarring of the cross as it was fixed into the ground, the weight of his body hanging there for six hours would have done that. And as he thought about the agony he was about to endure, his heart seemed to melt within him. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. Um, Those horrors came upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane and as he walked towards the cross, all of that must have been in his mind. But then look at verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. This was many, many years before the Romans had even invented that horrific form of execution uh, by crucifixion. That was not even known in the time of David, and yet he can prophesy They pierced my hands and my feet. You see how accurate God's word is? How perfect it is foretelling events that are future? I can count all my bones. His bones would have been visible under the skin. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing. They cast lots, verse 18. John's gospel in chapter 19 records that that's exactly what happened. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue clings to my jaws. The result of um, the heat and the extreme uh, sufferings that he was going through, the loss of blood, would have uh, given him a a fever, a severe thirst. And... um, John, in his gospel, again tells us, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. The Lord Jesus knew now he was about to die. God had brought him, as verse 15 says, to the dust of death. And John goes on to say that after Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, when he cried out those words, it is finished, what was he saying? 
Was he saying, it's all over, I'm destroyed, it's all gone, all that I've been working towards, all the the work that I've been seeking to do, it's all come to nothing. Is that what he was saying? It is finished. No. When he said it is finished, far from that, he, he was saying the work that my father has given me to do has been accomplished. It has all been done. It is finished. Um, maybe when you're working on some project, some kind of studies or um, some kind of practical work, some some work um, in, in your own employment or at home or whatever it is you're doing, and you get to the end of that and uh, there's that sense of satisfaction and relief. It is finished. These are the words of triumph. The father had given the son this task, this immense task to save his people from their sins. And he had done everything, everything necessary to rescue us from our sins. It is finished. And the proof of that, of course, is that Jesus was raised to life again from the dead. Now, The words at the end of this psalm are interesting. That he has done this, in verse 31. Because um, they can be quite legitimately translated, it is finished. In other words, though physically, in one sense, his enemies had destroyed his body, he knew that his... um, His life in this earthly, temporary situation had come to an end. Yet through that, uh, fulfilling all that the Father had given him to do, he was bringing his people into victory and life forever through his resurrection from the grave. And so the answer of this psalm, the answer to that cry, I am destroyed, is God saves, God saves. And that's the positive note on which we end this psalm. God saves. From verse 21, there's a change in the whole tone of the psalm. And at the end of that verse, David cries, you have answered me. He cried, save me. And then he says, you have answered me. God saves David was asking for physical protection from his enemies, um, but there are all kinds of applications here. You and I were in in, in a helpless condition before we came to Christ. Sin in our lives was bringing us closer and closer to destruction and ruin eternally. But God saves And that's why he sent his son into the world. And if you call upon him, save me, he will hear your prayer and he will answer you. The word trust or trusted is used five times in this psalm. It means literally to roll yourself onto the mercy of God. And as you do that, as you cry to the Lord, Save me. I believe that you sent your son to save me. And Lord, please save me from my sins eternally and bring me into life. Bring me peace. 
through Jesus Christ. He will hear you. Have you prayed like that? Have you come to the Saviour? Have you trusted in him? Have you cast yourself upon the mercy of God? Would you do that and, and come to Jesus Christ today? But the promise here, the great encouragement on which we end in this psalm is that God's work of salvation would be unstoppable. People from all nations, all classes of society, rich and poor, would come within the orbit of the gospel. All the ends of the world, verse 27, shall remember and turn to the Lord. Verse 30 and 31 mentions a posterity, a faithful remnant of God's people serving him and declaring his righteousness to a people who were yet to be born. I think that might be us today here in Wales, reaching out still with the good news of salvation. Um, we're part of that. All of that that was foreseen here all those years ago in Psalm 22. Um, God's work is going on. It's going on here in Gosainan. It's going on here throughout Wales and the UK and throughout the world. And people are, are coming to Christ. And uh, they're, they're being part of that great movement of God. Uh, we may not be in revival days at this moment, but God is at work, make no mistake. And, and he is saving people and bringing them into his kingdom. He rules over the nations. And um, we trust in him that he has done this. It is finished. Nothing can undo it. If you're trusting in Christ, it's true for you. There are three questions that people often ask about God. The first question is, is God really there? The second question is, if God is there, does he care? Does he care about me? And the third question, if God is there and he does care, can he actually do anything about, about where I am and, and what's, uh, what, what the problems are for me eternally? Can he do anything? Well, the answer, of course, of God's word is yes to all those questions. Yes, he is there, not just in our imagination, but really there. It's only a prayer away. And he cares deeply. And he's proved that by sending his son to die for us. And that's what he has done. He has done everything necessary to, to set us free from our sins and to bring us into his eternal presence with joy. He has done it. Nothing can undo it. If you're trusting in Christ, then you will be saved. God has said so. Will we believe him?